Tada, Tada, then, Vaikunta, Vaikunta, of the Supreme Lord, Vishanat, from the abode, Tayo, as both of them, Nipatamanayo, were falling. Ahakara, roaring in disappointment. Mahan, great. Asit, occurred. Vimana Agreshu, in the best of airplanes or starships. Putraka, O demigods, translation by his divine grace, Srila Prabhupada. Then, as Jai and Vijay fell from the Lord's abode, a great roar of disappointment arose from all the demigods who were sitting in their splendid airships. Text 35. Taveva yadurana prapto. Parsada Barbaro Hare, Diterjat Haranir Vishtam, Kashyapanteja Ulvaram. Lord Brahma continued Those two principal doorkeepers of the personality of Godhead have now entered the womb of Diti, the powerful semen of Kashyapa Muni having covered them. Srila Prabhupada's purport. Here is clear proof of how a living entity coming originally from Vaikuntha Loka is encaged in material elements. The living entity takes shelter within the semen of a father, which is injected within the womb of a mother, and with the help of the mother's emulsified ovum, the living entity grows a particular type of a body. In this connection, it is to be remembered that the mind of Kashyapa Muni was not in order when he conceived the two sons, Hiranyaksha and Hiranyakashipu. Therefore, the semen he discharged was simultaneously extremely powerful and mixed with the quality of anger. It is to be concluded that while conceiving a child, one's mind must be very sober and devotional. For this purpose, the Garbhadhana Sanskara is recommended in the Vedic scriptures. If the mind of the father is not sober, the semen discharge will not be very good. Thus, the living entity wrapped in the matter produced from the father and mother will be demoniac like Hiranyaksha and Hiranyakashipu. The conditions of conception are to be carefully studied. This is a very great science. So uh, we see here that when Jaya and Vijay fell from the Lord's abode, then the demigods, they roared in great disappointment. They were unhappy to see that. And Lord Brahma, who is narrating this pastime, says that when they fell from the Lord's abode to this material world, they 
the, the souls, not the bodies, but the spirit souls of those two living entities entered the womb of Diti, who was the wife of the powerful yogi Kashyapa Muni. However, Kashyapa Muni, at the time of conceiving the child, actually it was both Kashyapa Muni and Diti who were not in the right consciousness. And because they were not in the right consciousness, instead of getting devotee children, they got demoniac children. Now this is very interesting because we saw in the case of Hirani Kashipu, he got a devotional child. So how did that happen? Somehow or other, his mind must have been in the right consciousness for that one short period of time. So generally there's affection or love between husband and wife, especially at the time of conceiving a child, because this is something that they both wanted that's why they got married. Let's have a family. And they want to have a loving family. And they want to have loving children. Nobody wants to have a demoniac child. But if the consciousness is not good at the time of conception, or if the consciousness is um, polluted in any way by selfish desires, lusty desires, anger, envy, I mean, so many things then that affects the semen of the father so that the mother is impregnated with a semen that is not pure. And there, that will cause the, the, the child within the womb to be affected by that. So here we see that in this case, that because Kashyapa Muni and Diti were not in the best of consciousness at the time of conception. They conceived two children that turned out to be great demons. Of course, this was all foretold in the, in the, you know, from the past, so it was destined to be. So, in other words, the Lord had arranged that they would enter into the semen of Kashyapa Muni and be discharged into the womb of Diti at a particular time when they were not in the best of consciousness, because there were many times when they were in the best of consciousness. But because this is a Leela, therefore it was decided by higher authority that they would be rejected at the time that the consciousness was not very good. So that's why Srila Prabhupada in his purport, he mentions the Garbhadhana Sanskara, which is recommended in the Vedas. So in the Vedic literature, there are so many different sanskaras, which are rituals or practices for purification, purification of individuals, purification of uh, father and mother, purification of children, purification of every living entity. So the Garbhadhana Sanskara is a purificatory rite that the father and mother perform before conceiving a child so that they will be in the most pure consciousness, so that they will attract a very high and elevated soul to take birth in the womb of the mother.
So here in this particular case, the living entities Jai and Vijay were wrapped in the matter produced from the father and mother, who in this case were not in good or the best of consciousness. And that's why uh, two demoniac twins uh, was the result. So Prabhupada says this, the conditions of conception are to be carefully studied because this is a great science. So it's a great science how to conceive godly children. It's a great science how to conceive either a, a male child or a female child. So this was understood in great um, detail by the sages of yore. So thousands of years ago, actually at least 5,000 years ago or more, because this Bhagavatam was recited 5,000 years ago or so at least, this was known, but today it's unknown. We can say, that today's civilization is suffering from amnesia because we don't know who we are. We don't know our history. We don't know where we come from. We don't know the knowledge that humans knew in the past. We've lost it all. So the present civilization is suffering from amnesia. Not only are they suffering from amnesia, but they're suffering from lust, anger, greed, envy, prejudice, bigotry, and so on and so forth. We don't have to go into it because we all understand this. And the leaders especially exhibit these qualities more than the common people. And because the leaders exhibit these demoniac qualities and because they're living lives of luxury, because they exploit the innocent public. Therefore, children grow up with the role models of corrupted leaders. And they think, well, if I want to lead a good life, I have to become like that. Because if I try and be virtuous like my parents, I'm just going to be poor. And so this culture of the modern civilization cultivates more and more degraded mentality in each generation. And it's only by the mercy of the great saints and acharyas like Srila Prabhupada who risk their lives to come and preach the true message of knowledge and devotional service to the Lord that some people are able to come to their senses and understand reality as separated from the darkness of ignorance. So, Srila Prabhupada was living in Vrindavan. He was considered one of the more saintly persons there. He was honored and respected everywhere. And his life was perfect, sinless right from the get-go, born in a wonderful family of devotees. His whole life was engaged in devotional service, service to man, service to God. But yet he left Vrindavan at a very elderly age. And everyone said to him, why are you doing this? It's not a good idea to leave the holy town of Vrindavan. You're guaranteed to go back to Godhead. And you're going to take a risk and go to America. Do you have any idea? You're going from the, you know, heaven to hell. 
But he was determined to do it. Why was he so determined to do it? Because he was filled with empathy. He could feel and experience our suffering. He understood it. And he wanted to alleviate that suffering. So this is empathy. He was compassionate beyond the compassion, though. He was feeling our pain, feeling our suffering, and he wanted to alleviate it. So he tried so, uh, so many different ways to get passport, to get passage, to get sponsorship to come to America, and it wasn't easy. No one was willing to help him, but still he did. And yet we see that he was not in good health. He was not only in old age, but he was in very poor health when he left. How do we know that? Because on the ship that he sailed across the Atlantic, he had two heart attacks. You don't have heart attacks when you're in good health. So even in poor health against all odds and in an elderly age, he left the Holy Dham of Vrindavan where he was guaranteed to go back home, back to God, and it took tremendous risk for us, whom he didn't even know. He had no idea who we were, just that we were suffering, and that the only hope was to deliver the message of Krishna and engage people in devotional service. So before he left, he understood the mind of his spiritual master that to save the conditioned souls who are suffering and rotting in the material world, birth after birth, life after life, is the prime benediction, the prime service of Vaishnavas. So Prabhupada explained to us once, there's three kinds of devotees. He said the third class of devotee, well, not devotee, but uh, disciples. The third class disciple, when you go and ask him to do service, he immediately happily does the service. That's third class. Second class devotees, disciple, you don't have to go and ask him. He comes and inquires, is there any service to be done? And then he immediately does it happily, that's second class. And first class disciple, Sri Prabhupada said, doesn't wait to be asked, nor does he go and inquire, but he understands the mind of his spiritual master, and he does the needful. And Prabhupada always remarked that we should be, we should understand to do the needful, to see what needs to be done and to do that. Who is the perfect example of doing the needful amongst our God brothers and God sisters? Well, there were several. Jayananda is one. Jamuna is another. So Prabhupada was the first class disciple because he understood the mind of his spiritual master was to go to the West and save the conditioned souls by delivering them the message of Sri Krishna and engaging them in devotional service, bringing them out of the darkness of ignorance where their eyes were shut tight and opening their eyes with the torchlight of knowledge. 
So he understood this. And after his spiritual master left the planet, he resolved that this he would do. So how do I know this? How do we know this? Because of several incidents. In the 1990s, I interviewed one of Srila Prabhupada's godbrothers, Dr. O.B.L. Kapoor. I was asked by Satyaraj Das, my godbrother, to interview him. And to, because Satyaraj was writing a particular book and wanted to get Dr. Kapoor's uh, input on a particular topic. So I went to see him. And then after asking the questions that Satyaraj asked and got the answers, <coughs> then I asked him about his relationship with Srila Prabhupada. So he told me this story. He said that he was a graduate student at the university studying at the University of Allahabad, studying uh, um, comparative religions. And he had also come in contact with some of the, the sannyasis and brahmacharis of the Gaudiyamat. So he was frequenting that temple. And that was the temple that Srila Prabhupada also began to frequent when he moved to Allahabad and opened up his pharmacy, Day's pharmacy. So he said that Srila Prabhupada and him connected right away. And he said it was probably because I was the only non-Bengali there. Everyone else was a Bengali. So Prabhupada befriended him. He said Prabhupada was 13 years older than him. So he was like a younger person. And he said, so our uh, relationship started, um, uh, how did he say it? Well, it started as a basic relationship, which he said turned into friendship, which turned into brotherhood. That's how he expressed it. So he would regularly come by as a student, because Prabhupada was a married man, to Prabhupada's pharmacy. And they would discuss. He would ask Prabhupada questions, and Prabhupada would answer his questions. So they were always having harikata. So one of the questions, well, he asked many different questions. But one time when he came, Sri Prabhupada, after answering his questions, handed him a vial and said, here is a tonic that I've just made. It would be very good for your health. I take this tonic, so you should take this. So he said, well, thank you very much. I will take your tonic. But why aren't you giving me the secret tonic that you have? And Sri Prabhupada said, well, what, what, what do you mean, that secret tonic? Oh, you know, a tonic of Krishna Prema that you have. Why don't you share that with me? So Prabhupada laughed. He said, well, actually, I don't have that tonic with me, but I do know the formula. <laughs> so Dr. Kapoor said, of course, at that time, his name was Adikesha Das. He said, well, if you don't mind, could you share that formula with me? So Prabhupada said, yes, the formula is and I shall spread it the world over. Mm -hmm. Prabhupada said, the translation for those who are new, 
is one must become more humble than the grass, more tolerant than the tree, ready to offer all respects to others and not expect any honor and respect in return. And in such a frame of mind, one can chant the holy name of the Lord constantly. And I shall spread this the whole world over. So Dr. Kapoor told me at that time, I was thinking he was just making a casual pronouncement. But now I see that even in those early days, he had it in his mind to spread this teaching all over the world, as he said. Then our god sister, um, what's her name? Mulabakriti. Yeah, Mulabakriti. She interviewed, she went to the, uh, the uh, Advaita Bhavan in Shantipur and interviewed the Pujari there. And he told a very wonderful pastime. So this Pujari was doing the worship of Advaita and Advaita Bhavan in Chantipur. So one day he noticed at the back of the temple, there was one devotee sitting very peacefully and quietly and chanting his japa. And then after chanting his japa, he came and offered his respects to Advaita Charya, to the deities, and then he left. And then once a month, this Grihastha would come. And then after many months had gone by, the Pujari developed affection for this Grihastha man because he had a very humble demeanor. He was very quiet and peaceful, very respectful. He had all good Vaishnava qualities. So he approached him one day, spoke with him, and got to know him. And every time he came, every month that he came, the Pujari was very pleased and happy and considered him to be his friend. And then one month he didn't come, and another month he didn't come, and another month he didn't come, and a long number of years passed and he didn't see him. And then one day, many years later, 1965, he came into the temple room to do the puja and he noticed sitting at the back was a sannyasi, an elderly sannyasi. And he looked at him and he kind of looked familiar. And then he thought, oh, it's my friend. He's taken sannyas. Wow. He's really serious about spiritual life. Anyway, later, after Prabhupada had finished chanting his japa, he came up and he was offering his pranams to the deities and to Advaita Acharya. And tears were coming from his eyes. And the pujari was very moved that he was and he was weeping like this. So he waited by the door and Prabhupada was finished and was leaving. You know, he offered his respects and said, I'm so happy to see you again. I noticed you were weeping in front of the deities. Prabhupada said, yes. May I inquire why you are weeping? He said, yes, I'm weeping because my spiritual master has given me an impossible mission. Really? 
Yes. May I inquire what is that impossible mission? Yes. He wants me to travel to the Western countries and introduce Vaishnava Dharma and Bhakti Yoga to the Westerners. And the Puchari said, oh my, that is an impossible mission. <laughs> and then Prabhupada left. And Pujari didn't see him again. Ever. And that was the eve of going on the Jaladuda. That was the day before getting on the Jaladuda. That's part of it. Yeah, 1965. So then, in 1972, seven years later, the Pujari, you know, coming in to do the new RT, he saw something he had never, ever seen before. He never could have imagined. And that was Western men and women dressed as Vaishnavas, saris and dhotis and tila. He was amazed. And they came to honor respect to a great acharya. They're offering their pranams to the deities. And they were happy, singing, chanting Hare Krishna. He was like shocked, amazed. And then when they left, one lady, and I believe it was Malati, handed him a Back to Godhead magazine. And then they left. So he looked at the magazine. Wow, Back to Godhead. He opened it up, and on the first page there was a picture of Prabhupada. Oh my God, it's my friend. He did it. He did the impossible mission. He was like ecstatic. He was successful. So Prabhupada did an impossible mission when he was not, not only when he was very old, but he was in very poor health. And he kept having health problems. We had to go to the hospital or he, you know, devotees would pray for him so many times. He was, but each time Krishna saves him. So here's a person who was so dedicated to give the absolute truth and share it with the world. And here he says <clears throat> that <clears throat> For this purpose, the Gargadana Sanskara is recommended in the Vedic scriptures. So all the Sanskaras are recommended in the Vedic scriptures because it's a great spiritual science. And this great spiritual science Srila Prabhupada delivered to us. And so one final pastime, which happened in 1975, when I was living at the Los Angeles temple and Srila Prabhupada had come, he, had, he was on a tour. He had left India and he was touring the world, going from uh, east, further east. He was traveling east rather than west. So he came first to Honolulu, then from Honolulu he came to Los Angeles. And he stayed only for two days. So the day that he came, the plane arrived around noon, so there was no morning class. And the devotees had arranged that there would be no evening class either. Rather than an evening 
class by Srila Prabhupada, there would be a drama that the Vaikuntha players, the devotee actors, had been rehearsing for weeks knowing that Prabhupada was coming. And it was a drama from the Srimad Bhagavatam, first canto, uh, the chapter entitled The Tapandavas Retire Timely. So after the the Gaurati ceremony, Prabhupada sat down on his Vyasa sign, and a tiny stage about 12 inches high was set up on the other side of the temple. So in the Los Angeles temple, Vyasa sign where Prabhupada was sitting is here. The deities are on his left side, and the stage was set up over there. So when everyone was facing Prabhupada, but when the stage was set up and the drama was about to begin, everyone turned around. So Prabhupada could see over the heads of everyone. So this was the story of the drama that Krishna, Arjuna, and uh, um, Yudhisthira are discussing that the Kauravas are really wanting to have a war. They're not willing to discuss and, and come to an agreement on the succession of the kingdom. And Yudhisthira and Arjuna have come to Krishna and said, there must be some solution whereby we can avoid war. Because so many people will be killed. What is the point? Why can't we settle this with dialogue and discussion? So they discuss with Krishna and they come up with a plan. So then that was the first scene. Then the second scene, they're in the palace of Duryodhana. So Krishna, Arjuna, and Yudhisthira arrive. Duryodhana greets them. And then uh, Yudhisthira speaks. And he says, Duryodhana, we have had a discussion amongst ourselves. And we've come to the conclusion that we can resolve our differences about the succession of the kingdom without having to go to war. Nobody needs to fight. We are five brothers, we're Kshatriyas, so we need just, we need to rule because that is our dharma, but we will suggest that we will just take five villages so that each of our brothers can rule one village and you can have the rest of the kingdom. We'll give you 95%, you just give us 5%, then we don't have to fight, no wars, no one will die. How many people think that was a good proposition? But Duryodhana didn't. He thought, aha, they know they're going to lose. They're trying to salvage 5%. <laughs> he was so greedy. And he said, I will not give you as much land as you can put under the head of a pin. <laughs> and he said it for so much. It, it, the actor was um, Madhava from New Orleans. He played Duryodhana. He was so good. And when he said that, everybody turned around to look at Prabhupada. Prabhupada was, he was very unhappy. <laughs> Sour face. Anyway, third act, the war goes on. And then the final act, Yudhisthira and Arjuna, they come to the palace and um, Gandhari and Dhritarashtra are there. And now the war is over. The Pandavas have won, but millions of people have died. 
and they're preaching to Dhritarashtra and Gandhari. Now it's the end of your life. Go to the forest, meditate on the Lord, go back home, back to God, and all your aspirations for the kingdom are dashed, they're finished. And then slowly they got up and they walked off stage, exit stage left. Now is the end of the drama. So then everybody turned around to see Sri Prabhupada. And Prabhupada was beaming ear to ear. He was so happy. And everybody was so happy to see Prabhupada so happy. He loved that drama. You could see on his face. And because it was Los Angeles, Prabhupada did something else quite humorous. He said, Saul, the Oscar goes to Eudistir. <laughs> he gave an Academy Award to steer Eudistir was played by my god, our god brother, Lokamangala Prabhu, who was a brilliant actor. And everybody went, they were so happy, and Prabhupada was so happy. And I'll tell you something, to this day, Lokamangala Prabhu is the only devotee who ever got an Oscar from Prabhupada. <laughs> Everybody was so happy. But gradually, Prabhupada became a little more serious. And as he became more serious, the devotees became more quiet. And then he became very grave. And the devotees became so silent. And the room became so silent, you could hear people breathing. <laughs> and we were all waiting, what's Prabhupada going to say? You know? Everybody was like, focus, what's Prabhupada going to say? And this is what he said. <clears throat> My Guru Maharaj ordered me to come and preach in the Western countries. Now, we all know that he wasn't ordered by his spiritual master, and his spiritual master had made a suggestion, and that was that the desire of his spiritual master, the Prabhupada, being a first-class disciple, understood the mind of his spiritual master. So he took it as, he ordered me. That's the sincerity of a first-class disciple. So he said, but I am an old man, he continued. What can an old man do? But my Guru Maharaj was so kind upon me that he sent all of you, American boys and girls, to help me. And now I'm very happy to say that Lord Chaitanya's movement is in the right hands. He left like that. Lord Chaitanya's movement is in the right hands. And we were all looking at each other. <laughs> Whose hands? No one felt that Lord Chaitanya's movement was in the right hands. And I realized later, Prabhupada was so moved, he loved that drama so much that he was convinced that Lord Chaitanya's movement was in the right hands. That's how powerful that drama was. And then Prabhupada said, if I have any credit, it's only one thing. And I'm thinking, if 
he has any credit. He's done everything. How cool is he? I was shocked, amazed by his humility. He said, if I have any credit, there's only one thing. That I have delivered to you the message of Krishna in Parampara without adding anything, without taking away anything, as it is. Prabhupada said that was his one credit. And then he gave an example. He said, just like a postman takes the letter from the government and delivers it as it is to the citizen. Postman doesn't open it up, change something, add something, subtract, he delivers it as it is. So Prabhupada compared himself to a postman delivering the message of Krishna, the supreme government, to us. So that is the first class disciple who understood the message of his spirit, spiritual master, the mind of his spiritual master, and he gave his life, sacrificed his life to deliver the science of Krishna consciousness to the Western countries. One other last point I'll make in this connection was in 1968. Prabhupada when he first came to America, he had a, a, a temporary visa, which kept being extended until finally the US government wouldn't extend it anymore. So in 68, Prabhupada went to Canada, Montreal, and the devotees were trying to get Prabhupada a permanent residency visa. And they worked very hard and they were able to get Prabhupada a permanent residency visa in 1968, and then some devotees flew to Montreal to give him the good news. And this is what Srila Prabhupada said to them. If your government actually knew what was my mission in coming to America, they never would have given me this visa. <laughs> it was to preach against illicit sex, intoxication, weed eating, and gambling. Okay, you know, his mission was to stop all these things. So if your government knew what my mission was, they never would have given this visa. So Prabhupada asked us to continue his mission. In a letter to Sudama, he wrote, so just do as I am doing. So when I read that letter, I was thinking, yes, let me do what Prabhupada is doing. So we should all be doing as Prabhupada is doing disseminating this knowledge to whoever we meet. That will be for our benefit and for the benefit of humanity. And this is the essence of Bhagavad Gita teaching. It's the essence of Bhakti Yoga. Because our constitutional position, our eternal position, not only here in the material world, but in the spiritual world, it's das, 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 under das. The servant of the servant of the servant of the servant. Our whole life is focused service to God and service to all other living entities. And as some of you may know, I've established a relationship with Tulsi Gabbard. I've watched all of her videos. I've I've gone to see her. And this is what she says also. But she's asked about her faith. She said, I'm a Hindu. 
belong to the Gaudiya Vaishnava branch of Hinduism, and I'm a practicing Vaishnava. And I practice bhakti yoga and karma yoga. And bhakti yoga means service to God. And karma yoga means service to humanity. That's how she, like, you know, whether she's interviewed on TV or anything, so she's right up front. So here we have, Prabhupada predicted that he's told, he, you know, he spoke generally, but he told specifically to Nanda Kumar. Nanda Kumar shared that with us. He said, Prabhupada told me, he said, don't have any doubt about it. You will see the President of the United States will become, will be a Vaishnava President one day. And Nanda Kumar said, yeah, hundreds of years from now, Sri Prabhupada, no. You will see it in your lifetime. And so I told Tulsi that. Prabhupada predicted this. Just to inspire her. <laughs> and I said, May Krishna bless you. And my wife said, Tulsi, you're already president. <laughs> she wanted to make it a fact right now, bring it from the future to the present. So, as Prabhupada says, this is a very great science, and we need leaders who understand this science, not the corrupt leaders we have today. Hare Krishna, thank you very much. Uh, any points for discussion? In this report, it is to be concluded that while conceiving a child, one's mind must be very sober and emotional. For this purpose, the Gargadam Samskar is recommended in the Vedic scriptures. If the mind of the father is not sober, the semen discharge will not be very good. Thus, the living entity wrapped in the matter produced from the father and mother will be demoniac, like the demoniac the food. The conditions of the conception are to be carefully studied. This is a very bright science. Now, in another purport, Prabhupada talks about how, by Chris's arrangement, uh, the genitals are coated with a pleasure giving substance to make the, the intercourse a sensational act, Prabhupada says. Otherwise, nobody would do it because raising children is so troublesome. So, Chris's arrangement is to me. So, my question is. If it's sensational, then how are you going to be sober? <laughs> okay, very good point. So we know that, that as Sureshwar has brought up, that the sexual intercourse, intercourse is very, uh, what's the word, blissful, pleasurable. <laughs> it's the highest pleasure in the material world. And otherwise, why would people do it? And I, when I was a young boy, like maybe three or four years old or something. And I asked my mother, how did I get here? <laughs> and she explained how a man and woman have intercourse. And I said to her, why would people do that? <laughs> because a child you can't understand such a thing. <laughs> but because when you grow up as an adult and you know what the pleasure that's involved, then you understand why people do it. But still, it's very painful. Not so much the painful that you suggested of having a child. That's not the pain. The pain is for the woman bearing, giving birth. 
And I know one devotee woman, for example, she was in labor for over 30 years. Uh, not 30 years. <laughs> I'm sorry. 30 hours. <laughs> sorry about that. 30 hours. And she said, after that, that's it. I'm never going to have another child. But you know what? She had another one. <laughs> and I asked her, because it's so wonderful having a child. Now, I had recently adopted a child, in, my wife and I, in India. Beautiful child, Krishna Kumari, her name is. And it's so wonderful raising a child. And she opened up my heart chakra in a way that no one's opened up my heart chakra before both my wife and I. And my wife recently, I heard her say to, to somebody, she was talking about protection of children. She said, if anyone did anything to Krishna Kumari, I would become like Lord Vishwanadeva. <laughs> so even an adopted child opens the heart chakra and you're willing to risk your life to defend that person, that child that they love. So, both things are there. So your question about how, if we're engaged in this most uh, pleasurable activity, how can you be sober? That's your question. Yeah. Well, the point of the Garbhadana Sapskara is that you're sober and devotional before you have intercourse. So you spend that day doing the Garbhadana Sapskara ritual to become in a sober frame of mind. So you approach, your husband and wife approach each other. Today we're going to have a child. We're going to try to conceive a child. It's something very spiritual, very sacred, very beautiful. So they're already in a devotional mood. They're not in a lusty mood. Let's get it on. You know, they're not in that mood at all. So the Garbhadana Samskara puts them automatically in that sober mood, dira. And dira means more than just sober. It means we're, we're controlled. The mind and senses are under our control rather than out of control. That's consistent with my experience. That's consistent with your experience, yes. and then it must be true. <laughs> because it's consistent with all our experience. Yeah. Any other point? Thank you very much. Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai. Oh, someone had a question. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't see you there. A related question. Suppose, like, as we're saying, you know, that's the point of being able to have children, or say someone's not able to have children, they adopt. Is there, what can you, is there anything you do, like, as far as, like, did we do this Garbhadana samskara before we adopted the child? Is that the question? Yeah. Well, no, because we, we weren't conceiving. But what happened? Like, it was just a Krishna conscious uh, decision on our part. So we had a, a lady that comes to clean our house, a maid. So one day she brought her child, Krishna Kumari. And both my uh, wife and I were struck with the qualities of this child. Very beautiful, very quiet, very peaceful. And 
we were both struck with wonder and we were disgusted this later and we thought, you know, how can we help this child? Because we both didn't want the child to grow up and her future was only to become a cleaning lady for some rich people, rich family. So uh, next time, next day, when we, our maid came, I said, why is this kid not in school? We should send her to school, you know. And are you sending her to the dentist, to the hospital, you know? So I got on her case. So then I said, we want to take charge. And so she said, anyway, she, her mother has given us full blessings. She's so happy. Even when we wanted to go to Rishikesh, so I asked her mother, we're going to go up to Rishikesh, we're going to take Darshan of the Ganga. Can we, you know, can Krishna Kumari come with us? No problem. So it's like, you know, she handed the kid over to us, basically, you know. And she's so happy to see her child thriving. And, you know, because she has a mother's love. And we have parent parental love also. Because that's why people who can't have kids adopt, they have that same experience as when you actually give birth. Well, suppose somebody, yeah, you knew that the kid was going to be in a particular situation, but suppose someone going through the agency or... Well, or no, like but many people in America, well, I have a couple of uh, Satyaraj and his wife, Rinda. They went through an agency and adopted a daughter. And the same thing with them, you know had the same experience. It doesn't matter whether you go through an agency or how. When you adopt a child, when you take responsibility for that child, then you will give your life for that living entity. And not only that, uh, on the plane from, uh, when I, we came from Vrindavan to uh, LA, I was watching a movie, it was called Duma, and it's about uh, a young boy who had adopted a cheetah. It's, it, it takes place in Africa. And Duma is the, the Swahili word for cheetah. So he adopts, they, they find this little baby cheetah. And, you know, parent nowhere to be found. They bring him home and adopt him. And then they want to come up with a name. They're trying to come up with a name. And that none of the names seem to fit. And then the mother suggests, why not just call him Tuma? Swahili word for cheetah, that kind of fit. And then the boy in the movie, he says, when you give the name to a pet, you then take responsibility for that life of that animal. And that's a deep philosophical point. When you give the name to an animal, you take responsibility for that life. What to speak when you give the name to a human child? You take responsibility for the life of that individual. So, it, when we take care of someone else, it opens the heart chakra. It doesn't matter how that care came to us, the heart chakra opens up. And that's what Bhakti Yoga is, taking care for every other living entity. That's the mood that Prabhupada had. I can just take care of one kid, but he has that mood for every living entity. That's divine love. Thank you very much. Yeah. She, well, she's now 13. She just had her birthday. Oh, nice. <laughs>